Hello, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast and I'm your host, Annabelle Collins. Over 100 schools have either had to close or partially close this week because of concerns their buildings might collapse due to the use of a lightweight concrete. This material is also found in many NHS hospitals. So on this week's episode, I'm joined by Zoe Tidman and Nick Carding to discuss how this scandal is impacting the NHS, why hospital buildings aren't being shut down too, and what's being done to keep staff and patients safe in the hospitals affected. It's actually been almost exactly a year since we last discussed the use of this concrete on the podcast. So Zoe, I think a good place to start is what is reinforced autoclave aerated concrete? I hope I've got that right. Um, and let's refer to it as rack in our discussion today. And why is it so dangerous? Mm. It's essentially a form of concrete that was widely used in public sector buildings between the 60s and 80s. I think it was cheap post-war material that started being used quite a lot. Um, and people didn't quite know what the issues were with it at the time and kind of as the years went on concerns grew and I think it was in the late 90s 1999 a report came out being like you know it's got a 30-year lifespan and that's when the alarm bells started to go off um but just to describe the material it essentially has a lot of air in it and the way people always describe it is like an aero chocolate bar. Um, and I watched this Sky News like demonstration about what happens and how you put it in water and it can sink and it gets like crushed a lot easily. Essentially, it is lightweight and crumbles, can crumble. Um, so that's an overall of, yeah, the, a description of what the material is like. And it seems, well, it certainly feels to me quite sudden. This story has hit the headlines. It's over nearly every publication and news channel. And it's mm. kind of the perfect storm as a story, really, isn't it? It's the, the first week back at school, schools having to close dangerous concrete and public buildings. And is that is that fair assessment? I mean, and also I'd be, be interested to know um, why now? Why has this suddenly hit the headlines now? Yeah, I, I think other people who've kind of, focus on RAC in the NHS specifically are probably quite surprised that it's suddenly come to a head now because it's been discussed for ages you know and it was recently added into the new hospital program because you know people are very concerned about it so it's been going on in the NHS for ages I think looking at what happened with schools is there were some rack failures not necessarily just in schools where the panels had been deemed like moderate risk and it was a surprise that they caved in um and the government got worried about the school buildings without mitigations so that's why these buildings were told to you know close suddenly sort out your mitigations um but i think people are surprised like why now because the risks have been known for quite a while. I think just the risks, I think these panels were just a surprise and the worry was that there weren't the mitigations in place for schools. So that's why it's blown up in that part of the public sector. Um, 
but yeah I mean the first school plant collapsed in 2018 I believe and kind of concerns and guidance has been going on since then so it does seem quite I don't know quite sudden. (laughs) So as expected Zoe the Labour Party have pounced on this and it's Mm. obviously um, you know it's being um, the blame's being cast at the Conservative Party as the party in power but is that fair? It seems like this was a decision made many decades ago. Um, do you think there has been any negligence in terms of them dealing with the, the use of this concrete and replacing some of these dangerous buildings? I think hospitals would say that the ones that are known to have a lot of rack, that it's not necessarily a political thing, that there's the danger there and they've been doing the mitigations. I guess the uh, the political thing is if the money is available for them. Um, and there's been 700 million announced to like mitigate RAC until 2025. There's, these mostly RAC hospitals are all in the new hospital programme now. I think the response and the desire is there to fix it because, I mean, ultimately, if they don't, it would just be awful all round um so I'm I'm not sure that's entirely fair but I you know I'd love people to challenge me on it if they feel that more does need to be done on it um and so how many hospitals are we talking about I know it's slightly complicated and you mentioned yeah. the new hospital program are they all part of the program at what stage are they in the program it's it's useful to kind of split the rack hospitals into two so there's seven that have been found to be have rack all throughout so two of them were initially part of the 40 hospitals to be rebuilt by 2030 um there were five others that wanted to join the program and they were finally added in may this year and there was a bit of hoo-ha about they were added in they were taking priority so others were delayed as a result of that but ultimately all the worst affected rack hospitals have been promised to be rebuilt by 2030 so those are seven and then there's hospitals that have like other buildings scattered around but it's not like necessarily like all throughout so they're able to once it's identified they can apply for like these funds to mitigate the risks and replace it on that we're not entirely 100% sure how many there are it changes depending on what survey you look at um so when there was a survey in 2020 like 33 buildings across 13 trusts were found to have rack and then I think that I'm not sure if that included the whole hospitals but anyway and then there was another survey end of last year where they found more about 41 buildings and then the letter to trust that we reported on yesterday on RAC, given the school drama going on, said that there was another survey in May and I believe additional sites were found there. Now, we don't know how many that is or what the scale of that is yet. Um, so it is a bit up in the air, but it seems to be like dozens of other buildings in the NHS, at least. I think we'll we'll talk more about that letter in a moment, but um, Nick, I wanted to 
bring you in. Um, <laughs> you were doing a bit of research as our previous estates correspondent mm-hmm. at HSJ, and um, you, you, we spoke a year ago about this on the podcast, as I said, but you uncovered something from 1999 on RAC. I think when, Zoe, you said the, the, there were warnings that it had only a 30-year lifespan. Mm. Yeah, there's some interesting uh, things. I've taken a little trip down memory lane and I have to do a big uh, nod to the Nuffield Trust um, because they, in 1999, did a very good report uh, which was entitled 50 Years of Ideas in Healthcare Buildings. Uh, And that was sort of done as part of the 50-year celebrations of the NHS at the time. But um, it has some good detail on the background of these uh, hospitals, which are particularly affected by RAC. So the the seven hospitals that Zoe mentioned. Um, And we have to go back uh, all the way to the kind of mid 1960s when um, in a slightly similar situation to today, um, inflation was quite high um, and the the then Department of Health was really keen to um, build hospitals cheaper. Um, where have we heard that before? And so they embarked on what has it described by the Nuffield Health uh, as the first generation of new hospital building, which was a, a great, which included a great big focus on standardisation. Um, and so the the first sort of group of hospitals built uh, in this way were the uh, sort of the seven which Zoe has referred to as having lots of rack. And they were known as, at the time, as the best by standard hospitals. Um, And they were literally described, uh, they had a slogan by the department at the time, which was two for the price of one. Um, So these were, um, you know, at that time, built uh, in a way that meant it was cheaper. It was more standardised and everyone was sort of very, you know, pleased with themselves for, for doing that. Um, Frimley was the, the first one. Um, I think the other one was Berries and Edmund, so West Suffolk Hospital. They were the first two, which were completed in 1972. And then you had the remaining five um, not long after. Um, the other thing to note about these Best Buy hospitals, as well as being standardised and um, sort of cheaper to build, was that they also were the first hospitals to um, Uh, be built with a sort of reduced uh, number of beds. So previously, hospitals had been built um, with a bed base for three per thousand population. So three out of every thousand patients would have like a bed. That was the sort of calculation at the time. It was with the Best Buy hospitals reduced down to two. So they were basically built with fewer beds as well, Um, which and had that continued throughout all the the hospital build subsequently, the Nuffield Trust estimates that would have left the NHS with um, 50,000 fewer beds than it has today. So it's probably a good thing that they didn't go down that that route for much longer. Um, but they, yeah, it's just a really interesting sort of look at how these hospitals were described at the time and looking at the parallel with some of the, the rhetoric which is being used about the new hospitals programme, where again, it's all about standardisation, building hospitals cheaper, uh, you know, speeding up the process because they're all going to be the same. This, These rack hospitals were the first attempt um, by the NHS to sort of build standardised hospitals. And I think, I'm hoping the, the NHP leaders are going to bear that, bear this whole saga in mind when they're now doing 
the sort of standardized new batch of hospitals because I think there are probably still some quite relevant lessons to be learned now that mm. the rack is um is causing big trouble. What what I'd just say on your point, Nick, it's quite interesting because the rack hospitals needing to be rebuilt, definitely the five that were bought in in May are now known to be re- one some of the really, really expensive schemes to do to rebuild. Mm. I think they're all over a billion. Um so you know doing stuff on the cheap and now it's like <laughs> some of the most expensive to try and sort out um, yeah and it begs the question doesn't it why because rack was definitely known about um in the last couple of years i remember simon corbin the head of nhs estates was was talking about rack um certainly in like late i think it was late 2020 um mm. possibly even a little bit earlier and um you know, that was at the same time as the final list for the new hospitals programme trusts was being selected. So, um, you know, you had the, yeah. the list of 40 trusts being drawn up at the same time as RAC was being identified as an issue in the NHS. And I'd, I'd have to say I, now, obviously, yes, we've got the benefit of hindsight, but I do wonder why on earth these seven trusts weren't just all included in an HP right from the start. So you yeah. might know why that is. Maybe their bids weren't good enough or RAC wasn't well enough understood. But why was well, that not the case? Interestingly, this point was mentioned by the National Audit Office, the government spending watchdog. They recently did a big report on the new hospital programme, which has lots of pages of very interesting information, but it talks about how the hospitals were chosen to be part of the 40 in 2020 and it says there was in general a lack of documentation and understanding as to why it happened but it said that um the department of health actually proposed rebuilding all of the seven um in 2020 but then the government decided it wanted to like further understand the risks and etc um so we're not entirely sure what happened there but it's interesting that it was initially I believe that's right it was initially proposed but the government was like hold on a bit let's like just double check what we're dealing with here and then a consultancy report said in 2022 you need to rebuild all those by 2030 and now they're in but yeah it was it was also raised it's come back to bite them though hasn't it because if they had included them at the start then obviously that would have been at the expense of some other projects but then those projects wouldn't have been in the program and so they wouldn't have been committed to by the government whereas now the government's had to commit to these rack hospitals as well as the other projects you know the another seven projects that technically perhaps are less important than than the rack trusts so i just i feel like um and those projects probably now you know they might have to be a bit watered down or scaled back mm. because of the the enormous costs of dealing with the rack trust so yeah by taking well, jo- that approach the government's kind of ended up having to do more projects than it probably wanted to it's hard because some of them would have probably had to have been kicked out that were promised new hospitals in the hip in 2019, yeah, 2019 if the racks were yeah. bought in but then bringing the racks in kind of caused the hold up and like made things difficult this year um so yeah I'm I'm glad it's not me dealing with it. It's difficult. I was wondering whether, and there are some trusts I know that have terrible estates problems, are being literally held up by scaffolding 
trust springing to mind are well hospitals springing to mind are kind of whips cross and I know Mary's as well and Mary's and Paddington mm-hmm. and I know there are lots of others but do you think there's an argument that there are kind of other more pressing dangers than RAC I mean you said that some of the RAC hospitals might get priority over others but then is, is that the right way of prioritizing things do you think well I, th- I think interestingly I'm just trying to call up the um the chief exec of imperial who does st mary's has been well imperial in general has just been talking about their estate and how difficult things are since they were some of the ones pushed back beyond 2030 and i I think yeah i think they might argue that their highest backlog out of anyone in the nhs is equally as pressing um but then obviously the threat of crumbling roofs is quite hard to ignore but yeah I I feel like ones with some of the highest maintenance backlog I mean it's the high risk backlog right Mm. yeah so so it's 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 high risk and yeah Imperial have the highest in the country yeah they've been pushed back it's difficult to know isn't it like what is is rack considered critical infrastructure risk or is it considered medium risk or low risk because that's obviously the three categories of backlog maintenance isn't it you know there's Mm. there's low medium and high or and and criticals is four and i'm not sure where rack has been placed uh previously it may have been only been seen as low risk or medium risk um but I would have imagined now with all the scrutiny and publicity and what's happening with the schools, I, I can't see how it wouldn't surely become um, classed as high or critical risk for all the trusts, pretty much, given all the the issues. Um, and it'll be interesting as well, the NHS has got this target to eradicate RAC by 2035. But I think that target is probably going to get brought forward, I'd have thought. Mm-hmm. And we've alluded a few times in this conversation to a letter sent to NHS leaders and we reported on it um, on Tuesday this week, yesterday at time of recording. Um, Zoe, what what are leaders being told by the government? What should they be doing to mitigate the risks? Yeah, they're basically being told to double check literally everything, like make, make sure you've got all bases covered. I think with with the schools going on you know people are rightfully saying well what about hospitals what about like other buildings so I think it was their way of being like there's a lot of attention on this there is the risk let's make sure that all bases are covered and we can you know avoid a situation like this so there was kind of three parts to it one was we know that in May we told you to do you know checks of rack basically on your buildings make make sure those checks are perfect you've checked everywhere you know where the rack is two it was where you know you have rack just make sure you're very happy with the management plans in place and they're robust and then the third point was it was kind of on evacuation plans and like what to do if rack failure occurs and it was like there was a big exercise in the east of England where there's a lot of rack where they like tested their evacuation plans etc it was like make sure you've looked at the learnings from that exercise and that's in all your plans so effectively make sure that your like worst case scenario plans contingency plans are 
you know you're happy with them so as yeah basically just uh <laughs> yeah i think double check double check everything to do with rack and make sure we're happy do you think this is enough like should should hospitals be i don't know should hospitals be um under threat of closure in in the same way that schools have well i think firstly it's interesting that in the may assessment the letter suggested that you know additional sites might have initial assessments of additional sites identified so if more rack sites were identified then yeah I think it's right that you know we need to double check this and make sure it's all okay I think when it comes to the mitigations certainly the seven among the like seven worst effective trusts I've spoken to they seem you know we've got mitigations as far as we can sorted we've surveyed our hospital you know super thoroughly and I think that's where the difference to schools is in the sense that you know the government told school buildings to shut that haven't done mitigations yet so you know hospitals are on that um and I think the other thing that kind of government sources raise is the way that the estates are different so hospitals estates tend to be larger buildings but like a smaller number of overall buildings to manage and you've got like dedicated rack teams at some of the worst effective hospitals so you've kind of got that oversight whereas schools it might be like you know random buildings dotted around and like smaller buildings to manage so I think I think it is a different kettle of fish and hospitals there has kind of been more of a a massive attention on it the other thing and I'm not sure entirely how much this plays into it but it is an important point to raise is it would be pretty dramatic to suddenly close hospital buildings right and reducing capacity at a time when the NHS needs as much as it can so I'm sure the kind of trade-off of risks especially where RAC is thought to be like pretty well mitigated the trade-off of risk of that comes into play as well mm. um so yeah I, f- I feel like there's a lot at play but I kind of understand like why there is the difference in approach at the moment but it's, it's difficult with the risk isn't it and, and I just reminded of a story that happened a couple of years ago where one of the rack hospitals um they commissioned a report into whether or not they would be liable for corporate manslaughter if you know if these roofs did collapse which you know I mean this must be an incredibly tough um you know balancing act for the CEOs and the boards of those organizations where potentially I think that report this was for West Suffolk if I remember rightly and it found Mm -hmm. that you know there was a there was a chance that a patient that would was affected by a potential roof collapse could successfully like sue the the trust for for corporate manslaughter Mm. so balancing that risk versus the risk of you know closing hospital um and you know subsequent loss of activity I mean it's a horrible decision it's horrible balancing acts it's sort of Mm. it's really devil and deep blue sea isn't it so yeah it's it's just this whole saga is sorry sorry I think West Suffolk put something out yeah with all the schools they put out a statement basically reassuring people as well being like 
you know, we've got these fail-safe support. Well, we're installing like end-bearing extensions, fail-safe supports, we're mitigating risks, kind of like reassuring people at the same time. Like, you know, we're trying to, our hospital's like, we're doing the mitigations, like trying to reassure people because there's also the risk like people, you know, might not, not want to go to a hospital that there's all this kind of attention mm. over. So yeah. there's also, yeah, the risk of that. I think that there's a balancing act to try and, especially yeah. the hospitals that have been campaigning to for new hospitals and highlighting their estates, yet also, you know, trying to tell people that it's still, you know, all right for them to attend. Yeah, I think I read um, at Queen Elizabeth Kings Lynn, which has been one of the most vocal trusts yeah. about Iraq, they have actively said, you know, we're struggling to recruit staff because staff are worried about the roof falling in, um, you know, it's, it's done quite a lot of sort of reputational damage, although they've had to shout about it to try and get funding to replace it. But I mean, they've, so they've cited workforce recruitment as another um, area which is, you know, problematic because of, of the whole rat mm. issue. So it's, it's not even, it's not just, you know, risk to patients and risk to the estate. It's actually having an impact on trust's ability to, to recruit staff and Kingsland is not in the most fortunate place geographically and has often struggled with um, workforce recruitment anyway. So it's, um, yeah, they didn't need RAC as well to put a spanner in the works. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say the impact on patient confidence in terms of attending appointments and going to hospital and spending time in hospital um, must be, you know, it can't be underestimated. As I said, it's, there's been a huge amount of attention in the news. Um, I think it's, it would be completely fair enough that people feel quite anxious about mm. going to these buildings. And as you said, Nick, recruiting staff, like I think, yeah, the impact isn't isn't necessarily an immediate one, but it might have kind of a slow kind of um, a slow burn effect, perhaps, on their ability to recruit and retain and non-attendances or whatever. I mean, I wonder whether you think that they might, the hospitals affected might start kind of starting a communications kind of campaign to reassure um, patients that it is safe to go to hospital. Because the last thing they want is people not turning up to appointments and, you know, all the, well, guess, all the chaos yeah. that that causes. I guess this is what West Suffolk's done, for example, putting out a statement in the last few days being like, you know, we are we've carried out all these installations like we're safe it's okay yeah yeah trying to like reassure people that I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot more of that um yeah it will be interesting to see what the ones who've been highlighting like how much they need new hospitals mm. and uh, yeah you're right Kings Lynn and who've been quite public about like all mm-hmm. the hundreds of props literally propping up their hospitals now they've got the new hospital in the pipeline what yeah how they're going to manage that in the meantime do, do you know Zoe um I think you might have mentioned it earlier but the, the RAC trusts the seven are they going to when are they going to get their funding and you know for the new hospitals have they been officially sort of classed as pathfinders or are they still in the cohort behind them what what's happening with their kind of they, prioritization they are among the hospitals that are have been pledged a new hospital by 2030 yeah. which essentially is like I mean I yeah essentially I'm not sure we we still haven't found out like what the queue is I'm not sure people 100% know all the comms has been though is RAC is being prioritized mm-hmm. um now I've, I've asked 
the Department of Health prioritise over who. And we haven't entirely found out, but I think it's just, you know, we we can understand they're the ones that they want to do before 2030. Yeah. And kind of all their focus is to making sure they are. Yeah. Is it, uh, I'm, I'm interested in it because, I mean, in the previous stories I wrote about Iraq, you know, going back the last sort of two years or so before Zoe, you, you took over, mm-hmm. I always used to get the same sort of response from the Department of Health, which was, oh, you know, we've committed about, what is it, 600 million, 700 million to supporting the RAC trusts. I think that was committed in one of the um, uh, budgets for, by the government, maybe in 2021, um, up to 2024. And, uh, you know, at the time you thought when rack the risks weren't so striking, you sort of thought, OK, 600 million, like they can manage the risk with that. Fine. But uh, now they've been put into the new hospitals program, obviously they're going to presumably they're going to get a lot more than I mean, there'll be 600 million per trust, I'd have thought, because mm-hmm. some of these rack hospitals have said it's going to cost probably six, seven hundred million to, um, you know, to build a whole new new site. So I'm just wondering, I'm wondering you know, are they going to get more money quicker now because they're in the NHP and, and because the risk has increased or is the risk actually still the same as it was before? But I think it's just yeah. that politically they have to be seen to be getting the money faster because they they need to make it look like, you know, they're t- taking it seriously. So they so the money that and I asked the government about this yesterday, the um, they're now saying it's like near 700 million um, that has been allocated to rack to mitigate immediate risks. So I asked them, I was like, is that mitigating risks and replacing rack? And they're like, yeah. I think now the mostly rack hospitals are in the NHP. They can still access these funds, but I think that can probably go to like mitigating the risks until they have the new hospital mm. rather than worrying about, you know, trying to replace it. They were only going to sort it when they get a new hospital, right? Mm. So it's like a separate pot of money for like, that's the long-term solution. That money they can access is just the immediate risks. And then everyone else who's found to have other, you know, rack panels here and there can sort it with that. I think the question about that funding is if more and more trusts end up finding they have rack, is it going to cover it? Because, you know, it was announced a couple of years ago. Um and I think we're going to have to watch out for that. Um, you know, presumably there's got to be more announced for it in the next spending review because the pledge to eradicate RAC goes to like 2035. So, you know, they can't just stop at 2025. So we'll we'll see. We'll see how much is announced. But um, yeah, I think it probably just opens up a bit more for the RAC trust in the NHP to like use that money to mitigate the risk until they get their new hospitals thanks both i think it's probably a good time to wrap up the podcast this week it's been a really interesting one um just a reminder for listeners don't forget to get in touch if there's something you'd like to see us cover and also don't forget to subscribe thanks very much for listening and do join us again next week and just a reminder for listeners If you're interested in patient safety, the HSJ Patient Safety Congress is taking place on the 18th and 19th of September in Manchester. You can join over a thousand NHS and independent healthcare leaders, managers, clinicians and patient representatives from across the country. 
The conversation will challenge the status quo on safety and engage in practical discussions with over 120 speakers across six streams of content. For more information, you can visit patientsafetycongress.co.uk.